Good morning, everyone. Um, as Mike said, my name is Luke. How's it to you guys online? One quick little uh, thing I want to throw in there to those of us who are online. If you are part of the Constantiaberg congregation, please do not use South Penn's giving codes. Uh, feel free to use your own congregation's giving codes. Uh, we don't want to have any cross-pollinating there. Okay. Anyway, uh, Today we've uh, we've been on, as a church we've been on a journey through the book of Mark right uh, many of us uh, you would know this if you've been with us for some time if you're a visitor you've joined us on really I think I mean every now and again you, your visitors join on a really like particularly interesting Sunday I think you've you've picked a really interesting Sunday today we're looking at the topic of uh, marriage divorce and following Jesus what we've been doing as a as I said, it's working through the book of Mark. And from time to time, then you come to texts and you come to topics that you kind of wouldn't normally address in the normal run of life, you know, in the normal run of doing church that uh, maybe it even would have been tempting to avoid. And it's easier not to mention, but actually so grateful to Jesus for the way he constructed his word that we are going to look today at something that's very important to life. It was just this week as I was reading through News 24's articles, as I do sometimes, I came across an article of a couple who got married and before they had got married had already planned their divorce. They had planned, uh, no, no, I mean, this was a couple who thought, you know what, people change regularly in life and reckoned that actually a human being has a five-year cycle and then you change a lot. And so they planned the divorce of the marriage um, before. What was most interesting to me was they were Christians, so they decided not to sleep together before they got married, and, but had planned their divorce in five years' time. Uh, a really, a really mixed-up uh, situation, and so it gave me a sense of conviction to come freshly at God's Word as we look at the subject of marriage and divorce. I want to say this on the front end. This is not just an intellectual topic. We're going to come at it in a thoughtful way. We're going to look at the scriptures. We're going to look at the Old Testament, the New Testament. We're going to look at what was said and what was meant in those contexts then. Absolutely, it's very cognitive, but it's not exclusively cognitive. This is a subject that is very emotional for many of us in the room. I don't think there'd be a human being, either in person or watching online, who would not have in some way been touched by divorce. I was trying to, as I prepared this message, count how many divorces in my family when you look at my parents and my grandparents, and I lost count. Uh, there, there are many, and there were some that are blurry, and I'm not too sure how they panned out, but I want, I want you to know this is something that's been very real in my life too, as we look at this. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at... A, A situation that happened in Jesus' ministry, he's busy teaching the crowds, and a group of religious leaders come to him with a very tricky question. And Jesus uses this question around divorce to teach his followers about what marriage is really like. And I'm trusting that God would be with us and speak to us today. Uh, as we as we grapple with this. I also want to encourage you, stick with it to the end. At, at times, this is going to feel tough to hear these things, but I know God is with us, and I know God can lead us, all of us, every single one of us, from this place. So let's read together from Mark chapter 10, reading from verse 1 to 11, as we look at what Jesus teaches about marriage, divorce, and following him. Mark chapter 10 and verse 1, And Jesus left that place, and he went to the region of Judea, across the Jordan. So he went to a different region with a different uh, governor as well. Again, the crowds of people came to him. The crowds loved to come to Jesus, as was custom. He taught them. Mark never really tells us what Jesus taught them, but just that the crowds loved to come to him. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Remember that question. What did Moses command you, Jesus replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
verse 5. It was uh, because of your hearts, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery against him as well. Let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, we're going to unpack all of this in a second, but let's come before God prayerfully and uh, see what this means for our lives. God, as we come before your word, we recognize, firstly, we live in a culture where everyone has in their own heart which way they should live. And yet, as Christ followers, we come before you and we say, God, would you teach us how we should live? What does it mean to live in a way that honors you, Jesus? At the same time, we want to also say that, God, sometimes uh, it's very hard. And so we want to ask you, Christ, to come and empower us. God, I'm asking for every single person, the the myriad of different complexities that each one of us is sitting, hearing, having read your word and maybe feeling right now, God. Each one different, each unique. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one from your word. I know you can do this, Lord. Would you speak to each one and lead us toward you, Christ, in a loving, gentle, and compelling way, I pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to break up every verse in that passage, I promise you, one by one, and we're going to look at what it means. But Jesus', is, uh, Jesus teaching on marriage is actually kick-started by a trap. It's a very dangerous question that Jesus is asked. Have a look with me, verse 1 and 2 again. Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, again the crowds came to him. And verse 2, some Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus is busy teaching and the Pharisees spring a trap before Jesus. It's an interesting trap. It's a political trap as well as a religious trap. It's a political trap first because of the backdrop that maybe you wouldn't be aware as you just read that. It's a very, very dangerous question. Here's the context. Jesus just moved into a region where there's a guy named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the governor of that region. Now, Herod is married to a woman named Herodias, right? Here's the backstory. Herod was previously married to another woman. And uh, Herod went off on a mission to Rome to do some business and left his previous wife uh, back where they lived in this region here. And upon going to stay with his brother, his half-brother, Herod fell in love with his half-brother's wife, Herodias. And the two of them divorced their previous spouses and then returned married to govern this region together, right? So this is the backstory. And then John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, sorry, he wasn't a Baptist. The Baptist denomination wasn't even thought of then. Uh, John the Baptizer then came out and spoke against this marriage, at which point they had John the Baptizer beheaded. So now they come to Jesus. They say, Jesus, what do you think? What they're actually saying is you've stepped into Herod and Tippus's region. What do you think about what those guys are doing, knowing that the last guy who spoke out was off with his head. Okay, so it's a very dangerous political question, but it's also a religious trap as well, because what they were trying to do is separate some followers. They were trying to diminish Jesus's growing power in that day by separating and siphoning all followers from him. At that stage, there were two schools of what we call pharisaical or religious teaching thought. 
Jesus answers them in verse 3 and 4, and then I'll double-click a little bit more on the religious trap. Verse 3, he says, well, what did Moses command you? And verse 4, they said, Moses permitted, command permit, uh, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Are you ready to get technical this morning? That you all take your vitamins, right? And you've all had your caffeine. Let's get a little bit technical. It's a very interesting question, and Mark only gives us a summary of this question. If you look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 2, we contrast the scripture with Matthew 19 and verse 3, where Matthew records the full question. Mark 2.10 says, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Question mark. It wasn't the full question. Here's the full question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Or what was called technically a for any cause divorce. Most Bible scholars and commentators agree that this phrase Mark left out for brevity's sake. But it is implied here. Imagine I said to you, is it lawful for under 18s to drink? What would you say? Everyone said no. But what what, what are under 18s going to drink then? Can they not drink water? Can they not drink orange juice? You all said no. Why? Because you, it was implied, uh, is it lawful for under 18s to drink alcohol? Was You thought I was saying, right? It, the same way when Mark records this, because that's our culture, that's the world we live in, this is in our psyche, it's implied in our thinking. Now, here's the question. It, when, when they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is implied. They heard for any cause. What's going on here? There's a pharisaical school of thought. There's two. This is technical. Stick with me for two more minutes. We're going to get this out. The, the, the one is, um, the, the, the main one we want to focus on is the school of Hillel. They taught this, that a man could divorce his wife for any cause, even if she burnt a dish of food. If she fell out of favor in his eyes, if she was no longer desirable to him, he could, if there was someone else he fancied, he could divorce his wife. Why, where did they get this from? Let's look Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is the last kind of really technical bit sticking here. Deuteronomy 24. This is now Moses giving the law uh, for how God's people should live, right? If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And he gives it to her and he sends her from his house. And if she then leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, you get a window into the life of a woman in those early years and dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce. And he gives it to her and he sends her away from his house or if he dies. Then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, let's stop and unpack. Very technical, lots of words, and we've got a little bit of time. I'm going to do my best here. This is a window, number one, into the ancient culture of patriarchy and the vulnerability of women there. What we see here is in marriage in the, in the old days, all the power lay with the men in the day. What's very important here is that God is not initiating divorce. The same way he initiated marriage in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 1 when God creates man and woman and we see this play out. God is not initiating something, but God is trying to moderate and to limit a practice that was popular in the culture, the practice of divorce. 
Moses gave them with this teaching with a purpose of slowing down divorce and regulating it, making sure, before there was no certificate, a man could just say, I divorce you, and they would divorce. Now God is saying, no, no, you've got to sit down, you've got to go before someone, you've got to write it, you've got to legitimize it, you've got to have this in writing, so the woman then is able then to remarry, she's got proof. What he's doing is he's actually trying to curb this thing and slow it down. He's not blessing it. He's saying, given that your hearts are so hard, given that this is so prolific in our culture, how do I limit the damage uh, that this is doing in a culture where this is so rampant and destructive? Does that make sense so far? This law was designed to limit the negative consequences of divorce. And the Pharisees had taken it to widen the pretext, to widen the grounds. Instead of limiting damage, which was the intent of this correction to a very broken culture, they were taking it to, in a sense, to cause more damage. So Jesus says to them in verse 5 to verse 9, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. At the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, this law was a concession to a culture that was very broken, whose hearts were so hard and calloused. And it was a concession so as to limit the damage and the destruction that was being done. It was there to protect women who were very vulnerable in that culture. And this school of teaching then took that and they, 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 they used this teaching to limit the damage of divorce, to redefine what marriage was and how you could get out of it. And so Jesus redef- sorry, redefines marriage for his followers. Makes sense so far. Very tricky section, very tricky top topic. And what Jesus does now is he says, no, no, let me remind you, this is what marriage is, and this is what Jesus teaches. Four things on marriage that Jesus teaches. Number one, we see that marriage is God's idea according to his design. Uh, we see here Jesus says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them. At the beginning of creation, and, and, and you know, we've just covered Genesis now. Uh, at the beginning of creation, God teaches what marriage is all about. Jesus is saying that marriage is not a social construct. Marriage is God's idea according to his design right from the inception of the world. Number two, Jesus is saying that marriage is between a man and a woman who are equal in value and in rights. Equal in value and in rights. God made them male and female. They're different, but they are equal. And the two become one flesh. Now, you can just imagine how revolutionary this was in a culture that so favored men and their influence, not just in culture, but in marriage too, where all the rights were stacked in their favor, where a man could just divorce his wife if she burnt his dish, right? Or dish of food, you know what I mean? Um, Jesus was saying, no, you become one flesh. All the power of marriage and divorce in that culture had previously rested with men. But what Jesus is doing is so profound. He's elevating the value of men and women to say, equal in the image of God, together becoming one flesh. Women are not just to be traded and to be disregarded like in the culture of that day, but they are equally made in the image of God. Different, but equal in worth before God. Make sense? Number three, we've got two... Number three and four to go. Number three, their future together prioritized 
over their family of origin, right? It was their future together is prioritized over their family of origin. For this, man, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. As I say this, my, my in-laws are busy visiting uh, church today from East London as well. So I'm preaching about this uh, very real context in our lives as well here. here. Let me say this bluntly. A wife now has priority over her husband's family in his life. You need to see how this was profoundly different than the culture of Jesus' day. Those days, people would get married because, because if, 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 if this one from this family could marry this one from this family, then the two families would be um, together, and then this one here would then look after the interests of their family in this thing, right? It was marriages that were based on uh, what would serve families of origins. This, it was marriages of allegiances between families so that those parties in that marriage would then represent their representative interests of their families of origin. And what Jesus is saying, no, your primary loyalty now after Jesus is to one another. The, the, the way we do marriage these days in culture is so radically different to them then because of this teaching here. Jesus is saying, no, your primary loyalty is not historically to, to where you come from, but it's to your union now. I remember, actually, in fact, it was one of my father-in-law's friends who said it to Lauren and I as we left our wedding reception. He said, it's now you two against the world. It's the two of you against the world now. There is no human being on the planet, not my parents, not my children, not my closest friend who has the place in my life that my wife does. That's what Jesus is saying here. Number four, in marriage, God welds, welds, well, God joins two human beings into one so that they become one new flesh. We see this here. And two will become one flesh. It's, it's like three times repeated. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What we see here is, for lack of a better word, God is the flesh welder. He's the, he's the melter. He meshes together. He binds two different Different people together to become one. And the result is, the result of this joining of God is a new ontological status. Two have become one, inseparable. God is himself the flesh welder. It's quite a profound teaching that Jesus gives on marriage. And worth thinking about it uh, in our lives. As you, as you go home, if, you, if you're married, go home and think through what this means in your life. But, but what happens is now, uh, something Jesus says, he, he, the way he answered them, the crowd seems to disperse and they kind of move off. And then the disciples get with Jesus alone. And so this teaching continues. Uh, and so we re read together in verse 10 and 11. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery as well. Now Jesus is alone with the disciples. And Jesus is teaching now about the permanence of marriage. Marriage is for life. It's permanent. God goes so far as to say in this passage that illegitimate divorce, illegitimate divorce and remarriage is adultery. Marriage is not merely a civil union but it is a joining together by God. When, when, you, when you marry someone, you're saying, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, all the days of my lives. It is a vow of future love, regardless of the challenges that we face or the personal changes that we go through. That's what marriage is. Why? Why is marriage that? 
according to the Christian teaching. Why? Well, because Christian marriage is this way, because it is an echo of God's nature and Christ's love for us. It is an echo of God's nature and Christ's love for us. He selflessly loved us regardless of the love that he was receiving back from us. He loved us not for for his own good and for his own benefit, but he loved us at great personal cost to himself. Think of Christ going to the cross in order to do great benefit and blessing to us. We who are recipients of his great love are now being transformed by this love. You think perhaps, perhaps before you struggled with a low self-esteem. Oh man, I'm so terrible. I'm such a this. Then, then, you, then you discover God's love for you, unconditional. So the creator God of the universe loved you so much that he gave up all of the privileges of heaven and died on a cross in order to rescue you. You think to yourself, how could I ever have a low self-esteem? He loves me so much. I'm so much more lovely than I ever thought in and of myself. You see, it's his love that then transforms you. Uh, almost like, I mean, we, we have this in Cape Town, the fechis, hey? the flowers that come out in the sun in summertime. And so that fechi, it's closed. It looks like there's nothing there. And what happens is that flower, as the sun, the glow of the sun comes onto it, it begins to flourish and to blossom. And the full wonder of that flower is revealed. It's exactly like that. It's God's love on us that so transforms us so that we become more like him it's the exact same thing in marriage it's your love for your spouse unconditionally selflessly poured out in devotion to them that causes them to flourish and become better human beings as well what i'm saying is this is about that and that shapes and informs this This is why Jesus is saying marriage is so permanent. Makes sense so far. But, Luke, aren't there some exceptions to this in the Bible? Yes, and I'm going to give you two. I want to say as well, though, there's a little bit of discrepancy within orthodoxy as well as to how these things play out. And so I'm sharing with you, this is the way I read the scriptures. We've chatted it through as an eldership team as well. There's some who would read it a little bit differently, and there are many who would agree as well. And so th- this is where we are. Number one, the first, uh, the first place that I'd say there's an exception here. The first exception uh, to this is in the case of adultery. And where do we see this? In Matthew 5, verse 32, and Matthew 19, verse 9. But I, Jesus now speaking again. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, uh, his wife, sorry, anyone who divorces his wife, except, this is Jesus himself, the same person who said all of these other words we've read today, except on the ground of sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneo, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. Okay, so there's this exception here of adultery, Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery as well. It's like Jesus is saying very similar, the same thing, but there's an exception he sticks in here, and it's in the instance of adultery. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not commanding divorce in the case of adultery. Not even close, but he is permitting it. In cases, we've seen this in our church, we've seen this in our friends' lives, in cases where where the power of repentance and grace bring restoration to a broken relationship, and years later, that marriage is flourishing and life-giving. It's beautiful. I'm not putting that on anyone when I say that today as well. 
This is not an intellectual issue. This is a devastating personal experience. It would be helpful for you to know if you've ever been through something like that. Jeremiah chapter 3 and read the whole book of Hosea where God himself puts himself in the shoes of a lover who's been jilted and who's been cheated on by his lover. And he says, I know what this is like. When, when every time you as Christ followers, you, 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 you break from me and you run off and you, you love other gods, you love other things and you forget about me and you forsake me and you do this. God himself, in fact, God says in one instance, I am a jealous God. It's the reason I think Oprah walked away from God. She said, I can't follow a God who's jealous. It's just weak to be jealous. I said, you absolute rubbish. Jealousy is the response of a loving person who's been, who's been sinned against, who's been betrayed. Any truly loving person is jealous in the wake of, of, of a break in the relationship like that. That's exactly what God is like. I said to you, if you've been a victim of, of that, I want you to know God understands. God himself places himself in the shoes in his experience of a lover who's been betrayed as well. There's a second instance as well where I think the Bible gives an exception to what, what has been taught here, and that is the case of desertion. I'm sorry, today is very technical. It's very different, it's very different um, than a normal service if you're visiting today, but we need to do this, teach, teach this clearly as to what the Scriptures teach, and I don't want to have gray areas. The second one is in the case of des- desertion. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, not Jesus, but Paul now speaking says this. If any brother has a wife who, has, who is an unbeliever, uh, and she consents to live with him, he should not di- divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound or enslaved. You think how this plays out. You think a person, a Muslim family and one spouse comes to faith. And the other spouse now rejects that spouse. Could lead to abandoning them, could lead to much, much worse. I believe in that situation that the, the believing spouse who's rejected there is perfectly within their grounds to remarry another Christ follower if that person so wishes. Now, two more questions. Very technical. Hey, you didn't know you were coming into this this morning, eh? What about the case of abuse? Can a spouse who's being subjected to abuse seek a divorce within these grounds? I believe with the help of biblical church leadership, he or she can on the grounds of desertion above. When a spouse is abusing another spouse, in my opinion, although the abuser may profess even to be a Christian, they are not behaving in a Christ-like manner and very importantly are subjecting the spouse to harmful abuse. Really, to put this in another way, you're abandoning the marriage and then keeping the spouse around so as to perpetrate abuse. This, to me, in my, as I read it, would constitute desertion. And, and, and with the help of godly church leaders who would walk with you, we would love to see uh, that situation resolved in the best possible way. I want to say as well, we come before these laws and it is like this, but, but we're not just theologians who hold to these things like, um, like metronomes and, and, and robots. We're pastors who take the word of God like this and prayerfully and relationally pastor and work these things out through the complexities and challenges of every one of our lives. None of us are exactly the same and every situation is different. And so please, I want to I invite you, if you are sitting in a marriage that is destructive, uh, 
every, every marriage goes through difficult times. But there's a time when difficult becomes destructive. And, and, and this teaching should never trap you in such a way that you're stuck in a destructive situation. It's in this situation. If, if, you, if you find yourself there, I want to say to you, come and talk to us as leaders. Let's work out what that looks like. Let's try and find, let's find the best way to navigate towards health and towards life in your life as well. Everyone, uh, this is an invitation to, to, to help. It, what if, though, you say this is destructive and your spouse says, I don't think it's destructive? Well, I don't think you need agreement there. I think if you think it's destructive, you come and you ask for help and we will back and we will work to work out what that looks like. Does that make sense? I don't think you're dishonoring your spouse when when you feel it's destructive and they don't and you come and seek help and you seek to say, what does it look like to bring Christ to the center of this? I think your loyalty primarily is, first and foremost, is to Christ before even your spouse, given all that I've said before. Does that make sense? It's very gray. Or blurry, not gray, it's blurry. And every situation is different. But God gives us his spirit, he gives us leaders, and and, and his word should lead us to life. Last question. What if you're divorced and you're remarried and you're sitting here thinking to yourself, (gasps) where does this leave me? Well, I want to say this. Generally, if you're married, you remain as you are. You remain as you are and you live under the grace of God as much as any of us do, whether married or singled. Uh, If there's something from your past that you need to own and you're living with a kind of smudge on your windscreen about what was done then and you're carrying that with you into the future, I'd just love to, another invitation, I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to work out what that looks like. Yes, there may be stuff to own. I don't know. Again, there's, there's no cookie cutter, everyone in the same boat situation here. Yes, there may be stuff to own, but we're pastors. You're never too busy. We're never too overloaded to work with you to see what does that look like. And the idea being that we want to go forward in life as we are in the grace of God and in his power to live these things out as best we can the way we are right now. There are many more questions, obviously. Um, And there's nowhere near enough time. On the website, we've got a doc available as well to have a look and to reread. But I want to just make myself available as well as any of our church leaders as well, should you want some further clarity. Well done, guys. Well done. Here we go. If you're single, last thing, if you're single and you hope to be married one day, the best thing you can do is devote yourself to becoming more like Christ. Devote yourself to becoming more like Christ. It is the greatest gift you can give to the world. It is the greatest gift you can give to your future spouse. We must land this one by saying marriage is God's idea by his design. It's permanent. It's designed to reflect the covenant relationship between God and us and to put flesh on that in ordinary human beings like you and me in our life. Jesus' standards may seem very high. They should be. Anything less, you should question whether or not he really is God. But in every instance, I want you to see the problem that Moses had, uh, that the people had, was the hardness of heart. In every instance, it's transformation on the inside that leads to how we live and behave on the outside. It's Christ that softens our hearts and softens the hearts of hardened spouses so as to be able to love their spouses in the same way that Christ loved us. 
I want you to know today that yes, the standard is high, but God's empowering spirit to us, each and every single one of us in our context, whatever it looks like you to do, is unparalleled in his ability to empower you and I to live the way God has called us to live. The second thing, his grace to restore us when we fail is equally unparalleled. Christ gives us grace and Christ empowers us with strength to live the way he's called us to live. Grace when we fail and strength to get up and respond again. That's, this is not a community of perfect marriages. Oh, Peter and Annabelle, your marriage is such a gift to us. This is not a community of perfect marriages, but it's a community of people who've, whose lives have had grace find us in the brokenness of our lives and empower us not towards guilt, but empower us towards new life on the other side of that. And that's what I want, what I want to invite us into. So can we stand together? Can we pray? Can I invite you to do some business with Jesus? I'm so aware every one of us and this message is going to come across differently to every single one of us, wherever you are, in your situation of life. I'm going to lead us in some prayers as best I can. If, if you guys wouldn't mind just um, even just tinkling some worshipful music in the background, please. And let's just stand before Jesus. I, I'm going to lead us in some prayers. If you say, Luke, I'm happy to do that on my own, you're welcome. Just shut me out and you do business with Jesus on your own as well. Come, Holy Spirit, and would you speak to us? Come, Lord, would you speak to us? Right now, every person standing before you now, God. For some of us, that was just a helpful encouragement in some areas. For others of us, man, that rocked our world. Holy Spirit, you minister to each and every single one of us. I thank you that in Christ, there is no unforgivable sin. There's no mistake that any of us have made that have left us out of the bounds and the reach of your grace and your mercy to every single one of us here today, God. So we look at your standards and we look at what you call us to, God. Jesus, we fall short. Every single one of us fall short, God. But yet we also see this beautiful picture of what it looks like to love another human being and be loved by another human being. The way in which you selflessly loved us, God. And we, we, and we want that, God. It's this thing of we want that in our lives, but it's just so hard as well. And and so for those of us who are wrestling right now with guilt, God, because of things that have happened in our past, I pray, God, you would move into us on grace now, God. You'd move into us with mercy now, God. We would hear your voice the same way you, you speak to all of us, God, that you're calling us graciously to walk this out with you. There's no condemnation. There's no sense of guilt here. There's an invitation to walk in your ways, even if you're not sure what that looks like, even if your situation is blurry and messy and you don't quite know which way to go and what this means. God, I pray that grace and an invitation from you to love in the way in which you have loved us would be the resounding thing that we kind of carry in our hearts, God.
I want to pray too for marriages and for spouses right now, God, who, man, it's just tough right now. It's difficult, God. It's, it's very difficult. I pray God's empowering grace to you now. I pray right now that you would begin to see not just not your spouse differently, but you'd see God differently. And you'd be able to look at your spouse through the way in which God looks at you. You'd see the way God looks at you and loves you, warts and all. Wrinkles and all. Bad habits and all. He, he loves you unconditionally at his own expense. That's something, God, of your love for us would soften our hardened hearts. All of our hearts get hard. But it's in seeing Christ's love for me that my heart is softened and humility comes freshly to me and, and, and my heart is softened. And then I look at others with love. I pray that for marriages in our community and our God. Maybe some in our number who's stuck in a destructive situation. God, I pray for life and for freedom and for this talk to open the doors to come towards a future that is better, God. Would you lead towards life? I thank you that your, your word shows us in this teaching time and time again that you are for the vulnerable, God. That's you. Would you receive courage from Christ to take steps towards a new future and hear an invitation from this leadership team to walk with you toward that? For the singles amongst us, I pray right now such a revelation of a realization of that which I am now in Christ needs to be changed more and more, that there are parts of me that I want to leave behind, that you would see this moment of singleness for those who will be married into the future as an invitation to shed some of those things. Your greatest gift to the world and to your spouse one day would be a Christ-likeness, that there'd be things in you right now that you just want to, they just need to be shot, they need to be put down. And there'd be new things to take up, new habits to pursue. And that you would see this as a gift to Jesus and a gift to your future spouse one day. Last prayer, last prayer. God, I pray for those amongst us who are lonely and hearing this message is kind of a reminder of loneliness. I pray, God, that you would comfort that you would comfort, Lord. But I pray too, we'd become the kind of community where there, there would be married or single would not define your ability to flourish as a human being in community. That married or single, our, our marital status would not define our ability to flourish in relational community because God, we've realized that in you, we see one another in new and fresh ways, God. We, we, don't, we don't have a value assigned to us because we're married or single. We have a value assigned to us because we're yours. Male and female, God created us. And that we'd look at one another, God, and see the value and the dignity and the worth of every single human being and appreciate one another, God, in our relationships make us more like the community of heaven one day, God, where there will be no marriage. 
but everyone will be whole and loved and flourishing in community, Jesus. I think we can finish today a little bit differently. I'd love to, I just think for some, you may want prayer still. You, you may just be feeling like, hey, I need prayer. Something got me today. God's ministering to me and you don't want to leave that place. We're going to invite the band to continue in song. And if that's, if that's you and you would like prayer or you just, you don't, even, you don't even want someone with you maybe. You just want someone, to, you just want to sit and be in the presence of God and do business with Jesus. That's perfectly fine. And if that's you, then I want to invite you to come and uh, to make use of the chairs inside in a second. And, and if someone, would, if you'd like someone to pray with you, we'll do that. Others of us, you're welcome to go and tuck into the coffee and fetch your children and all of those other things. But it may just be that some of us would just like to stay and linger a little bit longer. As long as the band, are you guys open to tinkling a little bit longer for us? Always. Mike, would I like to land us or would you like to land us? I would like to land us. And now go, Christ follower, male or female, in the image of God. Equal in value. Dearly loved by Him. Not one of us perfect, but everyone loved through the cross of Christ in the most gracious way that would redefine our existence as children of God. Every one of us. And would you love others in the image and the way that you have been loved? as you go from this place. Amen. I encourage you, if you would like to stick around and just sit a little bit, let's do that inside. For others of us, we're gonna make our way outside as well. I'm gonna stick around if I can pray with any of you, some other leaders as well. We'd love to do that. We'll do it in COVID-appropriate ways. To those of us online, go well, go to the world and love in the ways of Christ. If, you, if, if this is something you need to grapple with as well, at Seaburg, chat to your leaders. South Penn, chat with us. We're here. We want to walk this out with you. Go well and God bless.